On this given day, today, of course, the 30th of December, 2007, we've arrived at the final Sunday of this calendar year at least, the final opportunity we have on a Sunday morning, the first day of the week, to come together to offer worship to the God of heaven as commanded of us, and what a joyous privilege indeed it is. As we ponder a bit about the character of what this Sunday may mean in terms of turning the calendar here in a day or two, our lesson today will involve looking forward, looking forward. By way of introduction, we noted last Lord's Day morning that when, in fact, when asked what time is it, we well remember, as some commented at the close of that lesson as you exited the building, that it's time to seek the Lord, that famous statement by Hosea in Hosea 10 verse 12. But as one considers the fact that it's time to seek the Lord, may we be rejuvenated, reinvigorated in our service to God, in fact, as we look forward to a time when some may make New Year's resolutions, when they may make decisions to rededicate themselves to a particular activity or way of thinking, may you and I feel so similarly toward serving God. Looking forward, rededicating ourselves in thought and in mind to accomplishing all that God is able through you and me to accomplish. This morning then, let us look just a bit at what that might mean. It's fair to say that when we say it's time to seek the Lord, you and I are aware of that division of events in which we define them as being occurring in the past, as occurring in the present, or as occurring yet in the future. Past, present, and future. We understand, of course, that 2007 is almost now an absolute part of history. Never a thing can be changed about it. Never a concept, deed, thought can be modified in any way. It's a part now of past history almost. But yet, isn't it also fair to say that the year 2008, with all of its potential, with all of its promise, with all of the opportunities that shall stand before us by the blessing of God, that yet stands before us. And we should eagerly look forward to taking advantage of it maximally, taking advantage of it to the best that God will allow us opportunity to do. That is, in essence, a portion of the lesson this morning. How might we use some scriptures of the Bible? some simple rules of thumb that we might employ to help us properly appreciate what now stands before us in the year 2008. There are two texts in the Bible that we will look at in some detail. One of them, Brother Jeff read just a few moments ago. The other one, though, is the one with which we shall begin. It's found in the heart of the Old Testament. I would ask that you revisit with me a passage from the book of Joshua. Specifically, it shall be found in the fifth chapter of that book, but may I supply just a bit of background as we look forward to the events that are therein stated. The children of Israel, of course, had found themselves in bondage in Egypt. And while there, they, of course, ultimately were subjected to rather difficult rigor, severe considerations and great work that was heaped and piled upon them. However, by the blessing of God, upon hearing their cries and their groaning, Exodus 2, 23 and following, he rained ten plagues upon the Egyptian nation. And as a consequence of that fact, the Egyptians hastened to them in exiting. The children of Israel, the Hebrews, were in fact asked to leave. We remember there was one episode, of course, at the Red Sea in which the Egyptians changed their mind and chased after them. But once Israel passed through that Red Sea... And once the Egyptians were drowned in the overflowing waters of that place, the children of Israel had been set free. They proceeded to wander for some 40 years in this wilderness between there and that glowing land to which they were headed. 
They'd been told about this land flowing with milk and honey, this land of promise. And as they steadfastly journeyed toward that end, their hopes no doubt were resting upon all the potential that was waiting there. It was not a desert land in which things were hard to grow. It was not a place in which it was difficult to raise crops and to have water and the blessedness of a fertile ground. Can you imagine the possibilities that rested in their mind when they finally arrived? As we turn the page to the book of Joshua, we find the children of Israel encamped just east of the Jordan River. Across the river was the land they'd marched to for 40 years. Across that river was a whole new place. They had sent spies into that land several years earlier. And those spies came back in Numbers 13 and said, It is the land to which we have been promised. It is a land that's flowing with milk and honey. It's a fertile land, a good land. However, they now have finally arrived almost to take it. In Joshua chapter 3, God miraculously allowed the waters of the Jordan to be dried up for them, and through that dry riverbed they marched, and into that promised land they went. It's a bit interesting to recollect, though, one thing that changed. Isn't it interesting that for 40 long years, God had blessed them six days a week with manna. He had rained it from heaven six mornings every week. Only on the morning of the Sabbath was there to be found no manna. All the children of Israel had to do was to simply gather it and to partake of it, to use it in the ways that they were able to, to sustain themselves. What a wonderful provision of the God of heaven, manna. Six days a week, 52 weeks a year for 40 years. Isn't that marvelous? Almost 12,500 mornings they had found manna given to them. However, once they crossed that Jordan River and entered the promised land, they entered it on the 10th day of the first month. We find on the 14th day of that same month, they in fact observed the Passover just as God had commanded in Exodus chapter 12. And then on the morning of the 15th, we find that that's the last time the manna was given. Would you read with me Joshua 5 verse 12? And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Isn't it an interesting thing to consider the timing of this event? It was God who had given that manna again for 40 years, six days a week. It was now God who, upon safely bringing the children of Israel through that Jordan River bed and into the land of Canaan, time for the manna to stop. Might there be some lessons that would be fair for you and me to study a bit about the nature, the principle set forth in that idea? Consider the following thoughts with me if you would. When that morning came and there was no more manna, it should be observed that the children of Israel were to be of the mindset that that manna was a beautiful part of the faithfulness of God to the children of Israel. This people over whom he had watched so abundantly for 40 years. He had promised them this glowing land of milk and honey and he had been faithful to that promise to bring them to that place. It would be fair to say that through those years of wilderness wandering they had endured many difficulties. Quite often they'd been lacking in water and God had responded by bringing water from a rock in Numbers chapter 20. 
we noticed that he had brought quail so thick and so deep that the people, in fact, sinned as they gluttoned over it. Again, in Numbers chapter 11. On another occasion with this beautiful manna provided so often, the people grumbled over it, amazingly enough, in Numbers 11. It's still fair to say that was nonetheless a marvelous statement of how God took care of that people. They had not to worry about food for 40 years. It was provided miraculously every morning, six days a week. However, that was to change now. Israel, you have arrived at the land to which I promised. This land flowing with milk and honey, it shall be able to sustain you, and hence there shall be no more manna. The manna was a part of history now. It was time to take advantage of the benefits of the day. Those matters that they now had directly before them. The abundant bounty of this land that was now theirs. Is it not easy to see that the faithfulness of God as shown toward the children of Israel is to be what primarily they remembered about that manna? And that as long as they remained faithful, God would continue to take care of them. But it would not be through the character of that miraculous manna. I'd suggest to you that Israel was not supposed to live in the past. It would have done no good to complain and to whine about, we want more manna, God. The time for manna was now past. So it is with you and me in our lives. There are times when we might be tempted to live in the past. When our reflection is so strong toward how things were and how things used to be that we fail to look for the opportunities that are now before us. And we fail to take advantage of all the goodness that now stands just over the horizon. In a way, a rather graphic image that we might remember about this scene in Joshua 5 could be this. For 40 years, the children of Israel had wandered through this rather rocky and difficultly barren land. It's almost as if one can imagine the horizon just before sunrise. When Israel crossed that Jordan River into that beautiful and fertile land of Canaan, it's as though the sun was rising on a glorious and beautiful dawning day. In my life and yours, if we focus only on that which has been, we're far more likely to not take advantage of that which can be in the future. The manna was a timeless lesson to Israel. You live in the present and you look forward to the future, you do not live in the past. We might apply that to ourselves individually, certainly, and we shall do that in just a moment, but what about ourselves as a congregation first? We at Pippin have been blessed mightily, no doubt. In fact, since the first Sunday in October 2006, we have blessedly enjoyed 19 restorations and three baptisms. Each of us can smile at the thought of precious souls, 22 of them in number, who've responded publicly to the invitation of God. But can we think only about that and rest upon the successes of that and give no thought to what we might yet accomplish in the future? If we do, we make a sad mistake. Jesus, in fact, pointed to us time and again the fact that past successes are wonderful. We should learn from them and use them to aid us to be even stronger and more efficient and better servants in the future. That's what Israel was to learn. Thus, might we at Pippin think about the fact that in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, notice that that is not a past tense verb Jesus used. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Thus, even though 22 precious souls have responded, and no doubt many others of us have moment have been in a private way encouraged, might we notice there's still so much work to do, isn't there? There are those in our families that aren't yet members of the Lord's body. There are those within shouting distance of this building who are not members of the kingdom. There are those whom we know, perhaps at work, our neighbors and acquaintances. We still have work to do as we look for the horizon of the future, don't we? Israel was to learn that that manna was a means of sustenance to bring you to this point. Now, avail yourselves of the blessings of this land and be the people that God would have you to be. In a similar way, a language like that may well apply to us. 2007, in many ways, was a grand year, wasn't it? But can we not use that to encourage ourselves more powerfully for the coming year? To, in fact, proceed in programs and other activities and works that will bring greater glory to the name of God? That's our challenge, isn't it? And how wonderfully we can do that when we will rest our efforts and our thinking upon the nature of His Word and to use that to guide our way. Those comments perhaps lead us to ask about a New Testament example as well. One to be seen in the heart of the text that was read a few moments ago. In Philippians, the third chapter, could you look with me interestingly at some of the thoughts there? And may we yet learn some more lessons about approaching the coming year. The person of interest is none other than the man named Saul, who later was the Apostle Paul. We encounter as our study of the New Testament this gentleman, this man who was very zealous, this man who was very spirited and enthusiastic about that which he intended to pursue. When we first encounter him, he is an ardent opponent to Christianity. He had no interest in Jesus other than to destroy the effects of his life and to destroy that for which he had labored. This man Saul, in fact, had in his possession letters whereby he was able even to imprison those that were Christians. Paul described this aspect of his life. I'd encourage you to read it with me in Philippians 3. Earlier in that chapter, the text from which we read earlier, verses 4, 5, and 6 read like this. Though I might have confidence in the flesh... If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul said, I was exhibit A of an individual devoted and dedicated fully to the cause for which I had espoused. And yet, something happened on a road to Damascus. Even though this one whom we've just described had advanced more than many who were his equals in the character of, of the Judaistic religion, Galatians 1, 13 and 14, nonetheless, on a road to Damascus, all of that changed. He spoke with the Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke with the very one whom he had had little interest in following before. And on that road... When he responded by saying, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Acts 9 verse 6. We find from that point forward one who in fact gave all that his life had to offer in defense of the very one. But doesn't that by itself pose an interesting set of thinking? 
Here was Paul, this man who had so persecuted Christians, who had so persecuted the church, and now was the very one preaching in behalf of it. What kind of change in mindset must that have brought? In fact, think of it in this way. Have you and I ever been in a position where we found ourselves engaging in something or pursuing something, only later to find that our disposition toward it was completely opposite? Did we feel awkward then when we were around that previous situation before? Did we feel uncomfortable when we were faced with it again? Maybe you and I have wondered, how could Paul climb into a pulpit and preach the very thing to the very people who he formerly had encouraged in opposing Jesus? What could have caused that change in a man? What might have made that change in his thinking? In this very chapter, he sets that forward for us. Would you focus with me again on verse 13? Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, how were you able to stand and proclaim the very message that you once had tried to destroy, Galatians 1.23? Paul, how could you, who would call yourself the chief of sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15, climb into a pulpit and strive to lead men to re receive that same gospel you formerly had tried to destroy? Paul said, this is how I did it. Forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to that which is before. Paul came to understand that that which was in the past was in the past. He was not able to change it, though no doubt with tears he would have if he could. No doubt he often wished that he could have changed what happened at the stoning of Stephen when he held the clothes of those that did it. But not one thing about that could be changed, for it was history at the time Paul wrote this letter. And in a similar fashion, the year 2007, for you and me, is almost now history. We are not able to change anything we've said, anything we've done, or anything we have failed to do. But can we not, like Paul, forget what was behind in the sense that we don't dwell on it? We learn from our mistakes. We strive ardently to do differently and better. And thus, we look forward to what's ahead of us. That's what Paul did. And in so doing, what a glorious example that he sets for each of us. In the language again of verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. In the language of the Greek, I count not myself yet to have laid hold and grasped that for which I seek. You and I thus first must learn that there are better things ahead. If we always again dwell on that which is in the past and think that things can never get any better than that, the future, that which lies ahead, can be a bit disappointing. It can be that which is disillusioning. But when we ardently and firmly expect that by the blessing of God, His tomorrow shall be better than today, we have every reason to look with brightness to that which stands before us and to fully expect that the year 2008, by the blessing of God through our faithfulness, can be better and brighter. What a great thing it shall be. The next thing he noted, but this one thing I do. There are many things about the character of Paul that are so very appealing. Things that you and I can use to strengthen our character. 
notice his determination. He didn't say this one thing I might do, this one thing I can do. He said this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. The first thing then that we might well appreciate now in a specific way for us personally is you and I have committed sins in the year 2007. We weren't perfect, sinless in the presence of God's eyes, certainly. However, what can we do? First thing he says, forgetting those things which are behind. With absolute determination, we set our mind to doing something better. Perhaps it's in our prayer life. Maybe it's in our study of his word. Perhaps it's in our attendance. Maybe we haven't been as faithful as we ought to have been. Shall I set before myself then the firm goal, I will attend every service, Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, Wednesday evenings, every service for which I'm not providentially hindered. Perhaps my prayer life, I shall pray X number of times per day. Daniel prayed three times a day. David prayed seven times a day. Even our Savior on one occasion prayed all night. Maybe it'll be in our study of His Word, our willingness to participate in the teaching of classes, the public leading of the worship for those that are the men. All of those things are now perhaps in such a way we can turn over a leaf and like Paul, forgetting what's behind, look forward to using our talents in the best way for what is ahead. In 1 Peter 4, verse number 10, we read there about the gift that each of us has as being the servants of God. The gifts being our talents and our capabilities. The things we are able to accomplish. It is truly a monumental thing to appreciate that each of us are unique and different individuals. We all are not skilled at doing the same things. And for that we should be thankful. What if God had blessed everyone with the exact same set of skills and talents? Would it not be a confusing thing to then appreciate how and who would accomplish it? But because we have unique capabilities, and there's work for all of us to do, we thus can appreciate that there's many things perhaps I can now with interest and with confidence step forward and proceed to do in this new year. Only each of us individually know the fullness of that set of the blessings of God. We are not able to read each other's mind. Is a new program or a new work awaiting for you in the year 2008? Is some new aspect of the service of work to the church awaiting for you? May we, with trust, as Paul, forget the limitations of the past, step out on the promises and the blessings of the future, and expectantly wait for the blessing of God to lead to success in those endeavors. For he has so promised that when we place our confidence and trust in him, he shall be with us. I will be with you always, even unto the end of the world. Matthew 28, 20. And in terms of the words of Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, we certainly learn there the case that there's no cause for covetousness, but indeed Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he said, I'll be with you always, even unto the end. One of the things we can then also see about Paul was the dramatic change that took place in his life. Some of those texts that you can consider with me on that screen he called himself one born out of due time in 1 Corinthians 15. He referred to himself as, in fact, a very strongly laboring apostle. We've now noticed what it was that allowed that change to occur. 
He didn't allow the past to restrict him. In fact, he was successful despite it. Can you and I do that too? Sure we can. For God has said, I'll be with you always. One of the other passages I've listed for your consideration is that scene in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and following. On that occasion, Ananias was, of course, a disciple whom God had told to you go and you shall there find a man in the city of Damascus. Ananias first was hesitant. I've heard about this man. He has imprisoned your people. And he is, in fact, a strong opposer to your cause. But God said, he is a chosen vessel to me. You and I are chosen vessels of God in the sense that we're his people. Saints of God called to his name. Are we living up to our potential? Have we understood fully the fact it's time to seek the Lord and shall now be ready in the coming year to do that which maybe we've been afraid to try in the past? May we not in fear, but with excited expectation, look forward to that which lies ahead of us. None of us are prognosticators in the sense of having a crystal ball. We can't relay the specifics of the year 2008. In fact, we do not at this point even know whether God shall bless us with it, but if He does, if He does, can we not with courage and with a degree of bravery confidently expect that God's blessings in the past, just as it had been with the manna for the children of Israel, was a confident token that they could always trust in Him. And it shall ever be so, of course, for you and me. Some further considerations concerning that text. Perhaps places a bit of the difficulty directly upon you and me. It is safe to say, God does not work in miraculous ways now as He did in the first century era. What the year 2008 will be for us as a congregation will be what we make of it. If it's lackluster, it's because of us. If it's glowingly brilliant, it's because of God's working through us. If when we arrive at December 2008, if we're blessed to that point, and look back upon that year and perhaps try and decipher the kind of year it was, it will be what it is because of our approach toward it. If we looked negatively upon it, and thus due to that, lazily approached it and failed to that, do that which we could have, then it'll not be what the potential would have allowed it to be. But if on the other hand, with excitement and eagerness and devotion, we looked forward to it and trusted in God to bless it greatly, we shall find that that's what will have taken place. You and I are the ones that limit what God can do. He is infinite in power, but when we fail to apply ourselves to Him, that's why our faith does not grow. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. When we thus refuse and fail in our approach to what He has commanded, that's when we find that our faith hasn't grown, our congregation hasn't grown, our influence hasn't grown. But if, on the other hand, we, with greatness and trust, approach those matters, we shall find growth will have taken place. Oh, the numbers here may not be 200 by then, but individually would we be stronger? Would we in faith appreciate the nature of God's blessings toward that end? Absolutely. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, Paul was so thankful that their faith had grown exceedingly. On that occasion, he said nothing about their number, but their faith had grown exceedingly. 
you and I can look forward to that same matter. And thus, at this point, in what way do you and I view the year 2008? True, it's only a few hours away, according to the calendar. Do we view it as a dark cloud that looms on the horizon? One that likely will bring terrible storms and difficult times? Or do we through, despite that, see a brightness behind the rays of God's sunshine pouring forth His blessings and we with opportunity to respond in faith? That outlook and that attitude is my decision and yours. The lesson this morning to this point has been a discussion about forgetting that which is behind, looking forward to that which is ahead. Paul so successfully was able to accomplish that, and you and I are able to do the same. What will the year 2008 bring for us? In summary, or in conclusion, some of the thoughts of the lesson might be concluded, wrapped up, if you will, in these words. As this year comes, quite often we make a great deal about the change of a calendar. We often speak so often about taking one calendar from the wall and placing up a whole new one, for it appears to be a fresh new time. As we mentioned earlier, some will make New Year's resolutions. They may make open and mental decisions about something they wish to change to better themselves. For some, it may be a diet. For others, it may be a particular attitude or way of life. For others, it may be some other particular aspect of their dealings with others. May I submit, let us not forget the spiritual aspect of things. There's no harm at all in the decision, not only at this time of year, but any other time to better ourselves, be it physically, but may we not forget the spiritual aspect. To make 2008 a strong year for God through us, we at this congregation again have been blessed so mightily. Our elders who have led us so aptly and appropriately, and we as members who strive to follow in a way that's appropriate and right, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 and 12. May we in the coming year expect and look forward to doing that even better, that we're, our influence in this community and elsewhere may grow even more. That must start, of course, with being a member of his body. Are you and I faithful members of that body? We understand that there is a gospel plan of salvation. We must hear the golden words of the text of the Bible. Hear the message of salvation that's offered to you and me. But hearing alone is not enough. We must believe that which we've heard to be the case, specifically believing Jesus to be the only begotten Son of God. Upon that belief, that should prompt us then to repent of those sins that have separated us from the God who loves us, and from that God who, in fact, has an eternity in store for those that are His own. Upon that repentance, confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God, and then simply at that point be immersed in water, baptized for the remission of sins. If you have never done that, let today be the day. There is no better way to start the year 2008 than with Christ holding your hand and providing you with a confident assurance of a life dedicated to Him. If you have begun that way of life, however, but have not lived up to its potential, in fact, you have failed in ways that are public and others know about those failings, this would be a perfect opportunity to let others know of your New Year's resolution, if you will, your resolution to do better, to be stronger in Jesus. We'd be honored to pray with you, to pray for you, so that those sins not only be forgiven, but you'd know the strength of God presently on your behalf. Today, if we could assist you in either of those ways, let that be known even now while together we stand and while we sing.